my name's Dave, I'm one of the uh, members of staff here. And um, particularly warm welcome to you if this is your, your first time. Um, this week and next week, um, we're going to talk um, about perspective. We're going to focus on perspective. Um, and um, the talk today, called this talk, Getting Perspective on Your Perspective. Getting Perspective on Your Perspective. Um, two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago today, it was Father's Day, and um, I was coming down the stairs. I had my um, our newest little baby boy, third boy, called Jesse, in my arms, and he's... Um, I think he was, he must have been like about 15 weeks old or something. And I was coming down the stairs and on the top step, I slipped and fell all the way down the stairs, um, holding him. And all the way down, I, I, I could hear his head hitting every step as I fell down the stairs. And I got to the bottom just on the floor, him on my chest and he wasn't moving, didn't cry, it was just silent. And um, I cannot explain the level of fear in my heart at that moment. Honestly, I don't think I've ever, um, I'm not sure I've ever felt fear like it, except for one other time when I lost one of our other boys in the city centre. Um, I am a good parent. Uh, before you, uh, just those boys, man. Um, anyway, to my massive relief, he, he started to cry. And, um, and, and, I, and I gave him to Lizzie, my wife, and, um, and, uh, but he wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't quite normal, like he was very pale, um, he wasn't moving properly, and so I thought, oh no, is it like a spinal thing, what's happened? So we phoned the ambulance, and they said, we'll be there, uh, we'll be there within two hours, and then he fell asleep, so we phoned them back, said he's gone to sleep, and they said, we'll be there in two minutes, and literally, they were there straight away, and so there was a knock at the door, they rushed in, they checked him out, and then they took him and my wife, Lizzie, off to hospital, rushed them after the ambulance to hospital. And, uh, and I sort of, I was, I didn't know what to do with myself. Like I remember standing in the kitchen just thinking, man, I would give anything for him to be okay. Um, it's just, I could not think about anything apart from him. And uh, our other two boys were there, Reuben, who's four, uh, Ezra, who's two. And um, sat down on the sofa with them. I said, you know, come, let's just pray, let's pray. So we all prayed. And, um, and then at the end of that prayer, Reuben uh, put his hand on my knee and he said, um, Daddy, remember though, we read in our storybook Bible last night, remember, um, you don't need to worry because God is always with us, even in the valley with the shadow. Uh, and if you know Psalm 23, it talks about God being with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And it was in that moment, it was in a I just burst into tears, I couldn't contain it. And, um, and it was in that moment that Reuben sort of brought an alien perspective into the moment. He brought a different perspective into the moment. And it breathed a bit of hope into the situation, not because the situation changed, not because anything externally was different, uh, but because there was a new thought in there. He brought a new thought to the table. Now, in case you think Reuben's like super holy, the very next day, um, we were driving in a car, and he really wants this waistcoat. He just loves this waistcoat that he's seen. And so he said, um, he said Daddy, I love that waistcoat. I really want that waistcoat. And we talked about it a bit. And then, and then he said this, and he said, Daddy, <laughs> he said, in my heart, Jesus is here, and the waistcoat is here. <laughs> For you, I was like, yeah, at least you're honest, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, he breathed, brought a perspective into the situation that breathed hope. 
And then Lizzie, I got a text from Lizzie saying, actually, they've checked him out. Everything's okay. He seems, he's much more normal again. Everything's fine. And I can't tell you, for the rest of the day, like, just nothing could bother me. Like, everything was fine. All the things, all the little irritations of the day before, the frustrations of the night before were gone. We've just, we've moved into a new house and we've done a lot of building work. All the little irritating, snagging things or the things that aren't quite right, like the way the, the, the floorboards and run into the patio, but they don't quite, it's not quite straight. It's little, it's just my issue. Um, all those things, like who cares? Who cares? Because I'm just so relieved that he's okay. Everything paled into insignificance in comparison. And it got me thinking about the importance and the power of perspective. The lens is through which we view the world. Um, you know, we uh, encounter pers- different perspectives all the time, don't we? I don't know whether you saw this this week, this little uh, newspaper. Um, this can come up. Do you see this? German losing. Uh, I, <laughs> I think the German uh, papers had a very different perspective on it, a very different perspective on that result. But we see different perspectives all the time. Whether it's something like that or whether um, it's Brexit, for example, is case in point. Now, everyone's got a different perspective on Brexit. I remember uh, studying psychology and um, we, were, we were looking at uh, footballers as a case study and how when they approach a penalty, they, um, they, diff- they fall into different categories. Some approach it with this perspective, with this mindset of, of this is an opportunity to succeed. If I, if I score, this is a major opportunity to succeed and that's the defining perspective they see it through. Others though uh, um, approach it with the perspective that this is a massive opportunity for failure. This is a huge opportunity to fail, and it has an impact on the way, the confidence that they then approach it with. So we see different perspectives all the time. Perspective is subjective, isn't it? I mean, your perspective is exactly that. It's your perspective. It's not neutral ground. It's not objective. It's not independent as much as we might like to think it is. Our perspectives are shaped and colored by so many things. Philosophers and social scientists tell us that they're shaped by our family, our upbringing, our education, our culture, TV shows that we watch, um, so many things. You, you, I don't know whether you ever have that feeling when you've been to a movie and you just feel like you can do something that you didn't think you could do before because you've watched Batman and you're inspired. Or We watched Incredibles with my boys the other day and I was like, oh my goodness, what on earth are they going to think they can do? You know, just freaking out. But Our perspectives are shaped by so many things but they also shape things. They define and shape how we see and experience the world, how we see and experience life. They color the way we see things. And so they have great power, tremendous influence in our feelings, in our emotions, our decisions, sense of what's right and what's wrong. They're powerful things. In fact, we only need to look at history to see both the subjectivity and the power of them. Today, we struggle to understand how slavery for centuries was condoned and celebrated. Yet, in that day's perspective, it was. And it had massive implications. In their perspective, it was okay. In ours, it's not. And the social implications of that are huge. Or today, we struggle to understand, you know, how, how, how is it that women were treated so poorly in the past? Denied the chance to vote. How can that be? Just cannot understand it. And yet, in an, from another time, in another perspective, they, they saw it as okay. 
Our perspectives have huge power and implication. You could go through so many examples, couldn't you? Apartheid, the Holocaust, shocking, terrible, massive things that were somehow seen as acceptable. Our perspectives are shaped by things and our perspectives shape things with huge potential for good or bad, I guess depending on your perspective. So given all this, I think it's worth putting our perspective in perspective. When you put something in perspective, you essentially choose to prioritize one way of viewing it. You choose a perspective to see things through, to color other things. And this week and next week, just wanna explore some perspectives taken from a book in the Bible um, called uh, Peter, One Peter. Perspectives that the author encourages them to see things through. It's like he's, he, he's, he's writing to this, these churches and he's saying, look at things this way. Think about things this way. And the book is actually a letter. It's called One Peter. And uh, it's the first of two letters. And uh, we're going to spend some time just looking at the first chapter this week and next week and asking the question, what does this, what does this teach us about perspective? But before we get into it, it's just worth recognizing that it is a letter. It's written about AD 63, so pretty fully old. Um, and as with any letter, it's worth asking, you know, who's it from? Who's it to? Why was it written? And so the letter was written by, by this guy called Peter, and it was Peter, the disciple of Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples, and he'd had a pretty eventful time with Jesus. Um, he'd walked on water and sunk. Uh, he was called the rock upon which the church would be built. And then in the very next breath, he was called Satan by Jesus himself. Uh, he was the one who rebuked Jesus, um, for, uh, was rebuked by Jesus for cutting off someone's ear, who disowned Jesus three times after promising that he never would. He was the one that Jesus had restored on a beach after he'd risen from the dead and one who the Catholic church would see as the first pope. That's who it's from. And Peter writes to not just one church, but a whole bunch of churches um, in the region of Asia Minor, which is kind of where the early church first began to grow and first began to have an impact. And he's writing to pretty new churches comprising of a mixture of Jewish people who'd recognized that Jesus was as the Messiah. And he's writing also to a bunch of people who weren't Jews, weren't from a Jewish background, but had responded to Jesus. And uh, so he's writing to Christians in what they call, it's called in the chapter, the dispersion, which is just a kind of Jewish term um, to talk about the scattered church. It's Christians scattered across this region. And, uh, and at the time of writing, Peter was in Rome. Uh, Rome was um, under the Emperor Nero. And, uh, and it was actually, Christians were experiencing levels of persecution uh, that, were, that were pretty high, not as high as they would become um, a few, uh, like a decade later, but some pretty serious persecution. Life wasn't easy. Um, it was bad, and it, w- and it was getting worse. And uh, I mean, what, what commentators write of various things, but Christians were being fed uh, to lions in the Colosseum and all sorts of horrendous things. So there's these Christians, these, they called themselves followers of the way at that point, and they were facing trials, they were facing struggles, they were spread out, they were the minority, they were facing persecution, and Peter writes to them to strengthen them, to build them up, to encourage them, and advise them how best to live in that situation. How do you hold on to faith in that sort of environment? So we're gonna just read the whole 
first chapter. It'll come up on the screen. It's a bit of a, it's, it's a good amount, but we'll get there. And then um, I just want to make a few observations um, on the basis of it. So 1 Peter, if you've got your Bible, then you can, or if not, it's on the screen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's a pretty standard introduction to a letter. You see that all the time in the New Testament. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out what time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I love that line. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Let set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or, blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God now that you have been purified, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Well done for sticking with it. That is a long bit to read. Um, but there's so much here. We're just not going to be able to get through all of it. But I just want to make um, four observations about it. Remember, they're facing trials and troubles and Peter's writing to encourage them and strengthen them. And it seems to me that he does it um, by giving them some key perspectives, key thoughts through which to see the world, through which to see their situation. He doesn't just go for practical advice, um, do this or don't do this, but instead focusing on how they're thinking, how they're seeing their perspective. Because your perspective in a situation affects how you live through a situation. 
Your perspective in a situation affects how you live through a situation. And so Peter goes straight for that. And we find the first thing, the first of those four, in verses three to four. Verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So he begins by reminding them of hope, the hope that they have. And hope specifically here is the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. The churches he's writing to, they'd believed in Jesus. They'd believed the disciples' claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Peter's reminding them of something they already know. It's like he's putting it front and center again for them. Don't forget that you have eternity ahead of you with an amazing inheritance full of blessings, good things. No more tears, no more sadness, no more brokenness. And God himself, every good thing to be enjoyed forever. It can't be taken away. Despite what they face now, it won't perish as, way, as in the way things do here. It won't go bad, it won't fade, it's incorruptible. He puts hope in front of them. The situation you're in isn't all there is. There's something beyond this. He puts hope in front of them. And it's like he says, let this color your perspective. It reminds me of the moment in Lord of the Rings, I love that film, um, where Gandalf and Pippin are like in this battle and they've got crazy trolls or, I don't know, bad things coming towards them. And it looks like death is on the, on the cards. And Pippin says to Gandalf, I love it, he says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says this, end. No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we must all take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What, Gandalf, see what? white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. It's better with Ian McCallan's voice, just, it is, but, um, <laughs> but I love it. Pippin says, well, that, isn't, that doesn't sound so bad. And Gandalf says, no, it's not. So good, I love it. But in the moment, in the midst of battle, Gandalf puts hope in front of Pippin. A hope that's not dependent on the situation or the circumstance, that in it's impervious to it. And Peter does a similar thing here. He puts hope into their hearts, the hope of heaven. And hope is a massively powerful thing. I read this week an article about this Polish Jew, Maya Hirsch, his name was. And um, when he, he was 15 when the Second World War started, and he was, he was moved from concentration camp to concentration camp and ended up in Auschwitz, um, finally. And he was taken there with his brother, and on arrival, he was told by one of the guards, no one survives here. And the guard pointed to the crematorium chimneys, and he said, you see that smoke there? That's where you're going. Imagine, 15-year-old boy. But Mayer writes this, hope kept me alive in Auschwitz, believing in God, clinging to that. And he says this, if there's only one spark left in you, then you have to cling to it. A person can survive a few days without eating, but he cannot survive hope without hope for more than a minute. Hope is a powerful thing. There's another story, Jose um, Gonzalez, I think his name is. He was one of 33 survivors of the Chilean mining disaster in 2010, um, uh, where a copper mine imploded and buried far underground for 69 days, over 2,000 feet deep, three miles from the mine's entrance, with 33 miners, including Jose. They were left battling thirst, hunger, physical and mental fatigue. 
with little hope of survival. And in one article, he begins to tell about the serious mental and spiritual battle that took place in the group, but also in his own heart. He says this, um, it says this in the article, he held back tears as he described how he never lost hope, even in the refuge, at the depth of 2,260 feet with no way out. The hope Joseph had spoken about for years in the light seems so relevant in the dark shadow of that mind. This ever-smiling man explained, he explained how he organized daily prayers and attempted to keep the morale amongst the men up. Twice a day they would gather to pray. Hope is a powerful thing. And for Christians over the centuries, um, specifically the hope of heaven has been extraordinarily powerful. There's a story in the 19th century of four missionaries who went to Madagascar and were condemned to be burnt alive at the stake. And as they were on their way to their execution, they, the report says they sang all the way. When they arrived, the firewood was fastened to posts to burn them, and it's reported that they were singing as they faced death. And they sang these words, there is a blessed land where we shall be happy. Our rest will never be disturbed. They know no sorrow there. Hope, the hope of heaven, enduring despite the circumstance. More recently, there was a story of the, an Australian guy called Andrew Chan. I don't know whether you, you heard this, but um, he'd been caught smuggling drugs into Indonesia, and he had a 10-year prison sentence ending in capital punishment. During those 10 years, he became a Christian and began preaching and telling people in prison about Jesus. And one article writes this, despite protests from across the globe, the authorities decided to uphold the death penalties. But when the day came for them to face the firing squad, everything, uh, something extraordinary happened. The prisoners declined the offer to wear blindfolds and instead stood and faced their executors. According to witnesses, they recited the Lord's Prayer and then they sang two songs. They sang two songs, Amazing Grace, and a song that we sing here quite regularly, 10,000 Reasons. The final verses of those two songs are all about the hope of heaven. Amazing grace, if you know it. Um, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. That's what was in their minds as they faced this situation. That's the hope of heaven. We sing that song, 10,000 Reasons, and the final verse, many of you will know it. On that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise and ending 10,000 years and then forevermore. It's the hope of heaven and it's a powerful, powerful thing. Peter puts it front and center for this, these churches. Don't forget this. Let it shape your perspective. I wonder how many of us this morning are in need of some hope. Maybe despite things looking okay, deep down, we just know that we need some hope. I wonder to what extent it is the thing that shapes our perspective this morning. So hope, firstly. But interestingly, Peter doesn't stop there. It's not just this kind of future hope that they have to hold out for, as if they had to just wait it out and detach from the present, um, you know, just kind of just wait it out. Maybe some Christians sometimes have that sort of approach. We're just going to sit here and wait for then. But Peter doesn't stop there. It's not what he's saying. If you look at verse 8, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And 
Here and elsewhere, Peter moves the focus from the future tense to the present tense. This, this isn't future tense, this is present tense. It's not all future, it's something here, something now. And Peter himself, um, he'd walked with Jesus, he'd known Jesus, he'd lived with Jesus, he'd witnessed Jesus' death and he'd witnessed his resurrection. And uh, m- many of the people in these churches hadn't. But Peter's saying to them um, that though you didn't actually see Jesus in that way, um, it doesn't mean you've missed it. It doesn't mean you've missed out, that there's nothing now for you until heaven. But he writes this, actually, you are filled, he says to them, you are filled with a joy, an inexpressible and glorious joy. The hope of heaven is massive, but the joy of knowing God, knowing him, is crucial. It's like he's saying, think about that. God is with you. The greatest joy of heaven that you will one day know fully is available now here today in your current experience. You don't have to wait with nothing holding out for the future. It's not just future, but present. And it comes, that sort of joy comes from knowing the Lord, knowing God, trusting in Jesus. It's a joy, it's not dependent on circumstances because it's not derived from them, it's derived from a person. The Bible actually talks about this sort of thing quite a lot, all the way through um, this sort of thing in Psalm 16. It says this, in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a joy that is deeper than circumstance. It's not dependent, not, not dependent on a circumstance, not derived from a circumstance. It's a joy that comes from a relationship, from knowing someone, from knowing Jesus. What about a perspective that was shaped by deep residing joy? Um, a couple of years ago, we um, had a, the Bishop of Baghdad come and speak. Some of you will have been here, Andrew White. And um, he'd lost many of his congregation to persecution and ISIS. And it was just awful. Lots of his congregation had been killed. And, um, and he stood here and he said, he said, he got us all to sing. And he said, I want us to sing a song that we sing regularly in our church in Baghdad. And the song that he got us to sing was the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Do you know that? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Um, and I particularly remember it because I, I lead worship here sometimes. And um, it's one of the, like, it's a bad moment for a worship leader. You dread this moment because he started it and he said, Is there, where's the worship leader? Could he come and maybe join me? <laughs> my heart sank. I was like, I don't know this song. And also, so anyway, then if you were here, you would have seen me up here trying to find the key with the guitar and failing miserably. It was like just horrendous noise after horrendous noise. And, um, but joy, 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 joy. That's the song that they're singing in that situation. It's, that seems counterintuitive. Joy, 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 joy. In the worst of persecution, it's not situational joy, this sort of thing. It's not situational, it's not circumstantial, it's not environmental. It's not because of a good holiday or good things or bad things. It's a joy in God. And so Peter's saying, let that be your perspective. Know it, know that joy and let it shape and frame your perspective. So think about hope, see, see through hope, see through joy. And then he says this um, the, uh, in verse 18, he says this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you for your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So thirdly, Peter is reminding them of a cost, the price that Jesus paid, and he's reminding them of the cross. It's no cheap thing, not something to take lightly or flippantly. He reminds them of the gospel, that he reminds them of the God who loved them so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for them, in their place, for their sake, that they had been uh, redeemed, which is a technical, technical term meaning kind of saved or bought back um, by God. And it wasn't to do with their own merit, their own goodness, but God's grace. They were forgiven from sin, freed from shame, restored to relationship, huge benefits. It was free for them, free for them, but costly for the God, costly for Jesus. It cost his life, his blood. And Peter reminds them of it all because to remember the cost is to birth gratitude. Remembering the cost births gratitude. And it's like Peter saying, don't forget, this is a massive thing. You know, if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, there's that moment at the end where um, Matt Damon's character, now an old man, stands over the grave of one of the men who gave their lives to save him. And uh, his wife joins him and he turns to her and he says this, he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And it's this moment where you realize that um, he spent his whole life aware of the price that was paid for him, that men died to rescue him, that it was a serious thing, not something to be flippant about. He's lived his whole life with this deep sense of gratitude, deep sense of the cost, shaping all his decisions. If that's what they paid, then it motivates his life. It's a perspective-shaping thing, and Peter's drawing on the same sort of idea here. Elsewhere, Paul, another author in the New Testament, he writes this, he says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's like, he's, it's like he's saying, in light of everything God's done, just think about everything he's done for you. So many good things, so many good things. In light of everything he's done, live. Full of gratitude. Let your perspective be shaped, Peter's saying to this church, by hope. Let it be shaped by joy and let it be shaped by deep, deep gratitude. Let those be the lenses that you see things through. And finally, there's one more point. Um, I just want to observe in the text. Verse six and seven says this. In all this, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter writes to them also about purpose. It's like he's saying to them, don't forget that none of what you're going through is wasted. God's at work refining you, so stand firm. He's trying to help them persevere, isn't he? He's trying to help them persevere, even though it's hard. And perseverance is really helped by the presence of purpose. Even that, you know, we know this in simple things like, like exercise, right? Um, we do exercise because there's a benefit. We have a goal in mind. It might be weight loss or health, fitness, a marathon, a competition that we want to win, whatever. We have a goal and it motivates, our, it motivates the thing that, that us exercising. It helps us persevere when it's difficult because purpose is key to perseverance. And so for Peter, genuine faith in that passage there is the goal, is the aim, and the trials they're facing 
reveal that, that, their faith and strengthen it. It's like, he write, it's like he's saying, there is purpose, there is purpose in what you're going through. Your faith is being strengthened through it all and it will reap rewards in eternity. So take heart, don't stop, don't give up. But it's, it's not to ignore the, or make light or replace the horror or the evil of the pain. Peter isn't writing, and this is really important, I think, he's not writing to explain suffering. This is not an apologetic on suffering, why it's happening. He's not condoning persecution. He's not saying it's a good thing. It's not his aim here. Instead, he's writing to strengthen troubled Christians. He's writing to help them persevere. He's not trying to write an apologetic He's writing to help them persevere. Keep going. God is with you. He's in you. He's still at work even in this. There's purpose in it. And you might be thinking, you know, example after example of difficult things in your life that you feel like it's not, I don't see purpose in that. It's unredeemable. You know, I can think of many myself just the last two years losing my dad, just suddenly I know he went for a jog and he died or we lost a little baby um, last year late in pregnancy and it was horrendous. And Sometimes the sort of feeling of like, oh, there's purpose in it, um, <clears throat> feels insulting. Do you, know, do you know that feeling? You feel like, don't, don't try and make this good. This is just bad. Don't try and make it good. But the truth is, it's hard to, get, it's hard to read this passage without noticing that this is how Paul encourages the church. Encourage, he says, God is still with you. He's still working. He hasn't given up, hasn't abandoned you. He's working for your good. I think it's crucial that we see that he's not trying to explain the struggles. Instead, he's trying to help the church persevere through them. It's pragmatic, not explanatory. And when it comes to perseverance, purpose has a role to play. He says, remember God's at work. Let that shape your thinking. So Peter's desperate to encourage these churches and he writes to them in this bad situation and he says, Think this way, think about the hope of heaven. Think about the joy that you have. Think about how much Jesus paid for you. Allow gratitude to birth in your heart and remember that he has a purpose for you in it all. John's gonna look a bit more next week at how we specifically apply those things to our lives. But um, I wonder this morning, what is it that you're facing at the moment? And what is shaping your perspective on it? What are you facing and what is shaping your perspective on it? It might be that you're not a follower of Jesus and actually you're just desperate for some hope and love to encourage you to pick up that white Jesus on your way out. And if you wanna come forward, we'd, we'd love to pray for you after the service this morning. If you are a Christian and you may, perhaps you're facing difficulties and you just do feel hopeless, maybe you know all that stuff academically but sort of, it's just become that. It's kind of become academic. The sense of gratitude in your heart just feels like it's not there. Or it might be that actually you're just aware that currently my perspective is shaped by so many other things, different things, bigger things, other things. And actually there's an opportunity maybe today just to start realigning your perspectives again. So Peter's encouragement to these churches, fill your mind with these things. Let hope, joy, gratitude, purpose be the air that you breathe. Because your perspective in a situation affects how you live through the situation.
be shaped by these things. Thank you.